0: Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Good morning. My name is Tom Dick. Uh, I'm the pastor of resource development here. It means I write a lot and uh, I'm excited to be able to preach with you this morning. Originally, Alex was supposed to preach, and now he got shifted later, so last week Chris asked me if I could, and I'm more than happy to. Although I have to admit, normally I have a message in my back pocket, always. That's what you do. And uh, Chris Pewhatch told me that once, in case somebody died on the way to church, you should always have a message in your back pocket, just in case you were called on last minute. He said get sick. I added, get, added, I added die. Um, <laughs> But I didn't this week or this time, and I really, really wrestled with how to, what to preach. And then on Monday night in my devotions, the Lord gave me, uh, gave me something. I'm excited about it. This last spring, I taught a course called Confident Christianity. A number of you were there. It was a course that was intended to help Christians to think deeply about their faith. Now, out of that course, Donovan Friesen and I started a, a Saturday morning uh, brunch Called Truth Talks, and we didn't tell anybody about it except for the group that was at confident Christianity, and we told them that you're only allowed to bring, you're only allowed to come if you bring a friend who's either seeking or has fallen away as a nominal Christian struggling in their faith. You can come, but you need to bring a friend like that. And uh, it was great. Uh, people gave their hearts to Christ. We had a very small group every time, never more than 20 but people gave their hearts to Christ, Um, people started coming back to church, and it was very exciting. Well, we started that up again uh, yesterday. We've uh, renamed it Waypoint because I thought it was a little arrogant to say truth talks, you know, and uh, so we call it Waypoint, and the idea with Waypoint is that on your journey of faith, you might want to stop and pause and think about what you actually believe. Take a a rest or a, a rest stop or make a Waypoint, and so yesterday morning we had our first one of the year, and by the way, the next one is October 31st, and if you have a friend, who is struggling in their faith or who isn't a believer, but searching for truth. Please don't bring people who uh, are just argumentative because I am as well and that never goes well. So just bring people who are genuinely searching for truth. But the next one is on October 31st. It's Halloween. We're all dressing up. I'm just kidding. And... uh, (laughs) And it's uh, 9 a.m. in the morning. So come and there will be stuff on Facebook advertising. But yesterday we covered a topic. We always take one topic. I hammer it from an intellectual side. Then Donovan hammers it from the heart side. And, uh, And yesterday's question was, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be free? Now that question has implications for us this morning. It might surprise you, but when you dig into the question of what does it mean to be free, it's actually hard to find a good answer. In fact, deep down, and when you get deep down, you find that freedom, the concept of freedom presents a paradox. So in other words, what happens if my version of freedom or my sense of freedom impinges on your version of freedom? And the example I gave yesterday, like, what if Donovan wanted to sit naked at 80 Penner Park? That would impinge on my freedom. I don't care how free he feels, right? And so at what point does his freedom win over my freedom or my freedom win over his freedom? And we have a paradox, and you have to wrestle with, what do we do? Because right now in the States, there's people who are fighting for freedom, but boy, they have to write a whole lot of laws to make that freedom happy happen, right? So what is freedom actually? Every worldview, every world religion has an answer to the question of freedom. Speaking in the most general, and take this, it's the most general terms. There's three basic lines of faith in the world. There is atheism, belief that there is no God. There's Eastern religions, and then there are Western or theistic religions that believe there is a God. And typically one God. In atheism, atheists have a very low view of freedom. Because to the naturalist who says that all there is is nature, you are simply a makeup of your DNA. You're dancing to your genetic code. It's what Richard Dawkins said. He said, We just dance to our DNA. That's all we do. You're just a robot programmed by biological information. Eastern religions, on the other hand, promote freedom from freedom from. For the Hindu, freedom is is from moksha. That's the great cycle of birth and death and rebirth and death until your karmic debt is paid off and you can enter into the great oneness, which is Brahman. But at that point, you're not free to be yourself, you're actually free from yourself. At that point, you lose your individuality, all your talent, everything, and you become one with the universe and you are now part of just a collective. Buddhism is similar. Leaving Islam aside, the great theistic religions of Judaism and her little sister Christianity take an entirely different view of freedom entirely. They look at freedom and they say freedom is a great reflection of our creator, who is the only entirely free being in the entire universe. It's a wonderful reflection. And in, and in Jesus Christ, the, ref, the, the freedom is more than just a reflection. It actually can become a personal experience. We're free to be who we were meant to be. In John 8, verse 32, Jesus makes a statement so famous that it's plastered onto many plaques of the world's greatest universities. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Famous. And it's it's literally all over universities all over the world. I actually uh, spent time looking at mottos of universities this week because I'm just that cool. And... And there are lots that use this verse in, in Latin usually, and, uh, and then there are many that use other Bible verses, and they put them on their universities, and their universities reflect nothing of their model. <laughs> truth and freedom, these great values walk hand in hand, but what truth is our Lord speaking of here? Is he sp- speaking about mere intellectual values? Is that what he's talking about? No, not at all. He's actually talking about relational truth, relational values. How do I know this? Because of what Jesus famously tells his disciple Thomas in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, truth is a person. And the more you get to know the person of Jesus Christ, the more you'll come in contact with truth and the more you'll be able to tell what a lie looks like. But there's another reason. And it's because of what comes right before John 8.32 and John 8.31. In John 8.31, we have this great and extremely important clause. And this is what it says. It's the one that's left off. Usually even when we quote it in church, this is the part that's left off. It says this. As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue as my disciples... You see, it's not just a one-time thing, it's a continuation, and we often leave that part off. So what is the truth really about? It's about having a long-term relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about discipleship. Coming in contact with increasing truth is all about discipleship. And you know what? It's precisely for that reason that most people barely blow the dust off the cover of truth. You know why? they don't want to persevere in the relationship with Jesus. And then they, they come to us and they say I'm struggling in my faith and you go well have you prayed? Have you read your bible? Have you have you do you have good christian community? And they don't have any of that stuff. And I say well no wonder. Because you aren't going to continue in the truth if you aren't continuing with Jesus you know there's lots and lots of studies that have been done on why people don't remain christians you know they they lose their faith that and there there's even more studies about or they're starting to come out now when people lose their faith you know there it used to be that we'd say at 18 they drop off you know but now it's even earlier we we there's a study called the hemorrhaging faith report that shows that they actually make up their mind to leave in, when they're about 14 years old And until they're 18, they'll put up with their parents and go to church. But after that, they're they're on their own and they can just stop. So 14 14 is the magic number where people begin to check out on church. And it's an issue of perseverance. You know, but I, I I have an even simpler answer than that. For many people, the losses they experience in following Jesus is simply too great the loss they experience. Far too many people come to Christ after, under false pretenses, and then they find that Christ isn't all that they were told he would be, and they drop off. They just drop off. This is the danger, of course, of the prosperity gospel. There's an evangelist in the, in the States. He lives in the States now. He's actually from Australia. His name is Ray Comfort. There's Ray. He's grinning at us. <laughs> Incidentally, looks a little like Ray Dirksen, does he not? <laughs> I just noticed that this morning. They both have a name Ray. They're both evangelists. He's not Australian. But he's Australian. Now, maybe he's a better evangelist in America because he is Australian and people just listen to people with an accent. I don't know. But I remember being in Bible school and this was like 17 years ago in Austria. And we were learning about uh, Ray Comfort's version of evangelism. Now, Ray Comfort made a statement. And I don't know if it's true because I've never bothered to verify it, but this is what he said. He said uh, one of the reasons that people are dropping away from the faith is because they're not being evangelized with the correct thing. He said Jesus actually preached the law 90% of the time. He preached the law 90% of the time, and only 10% of the time did he preach grace to people, and only people with the softest hearts. And he used a great example, it's a famous example, you might have heard it before, and it comes from Ray Comfort, and it goes something like this. Let's say you got onto an airplane, okay? There's American Airlines. And this is even now more like Pastor Ray, because he could fly that thing, (laughs) right? Let's say you get onto an airplane, and the, the, you're settling in for your flight, and y- you fly economy, because that's all you can afford, because you're maybe a pastor or a missionary, and <laughs> then the stewardess comes by, and, and she says, here, I have a parachute for you. You go, parachute? What would I want to do with a parachute? She says, oh no, you'll want to wear a parachute. You see, if you put this parachute on, it's going to make your ride much more enjoyable. You know, you're going to feel safer. You're going to feel more comfortable. You're going to, it's going to be great. You get a parachute and you put it on and it's big and bulky and it makes you lean forward and you're like, this is not so great after all. And you know, as people, as things are going on, people are starting to laugh because you're the only one wearing a parachute and you look like a dork and it's just not comfortable. You can't sleep, you can't do anything. And then the stewardess comes out and she's passing coffee around, right? And, and, and she accidentally spills a bit of coffee on your lap and you're like, oh my goodness, what is the matter with you? Because you're already irritated and this is the last straw. And you get up and you take that parachute off and you throw it on the ground. And you say, what a blasted waste of time. This has not helped me at all, right? And, and you'd probably use worse words than that because you're so angry, right? <laughs> words that you wouldn't normally utter in church. And you throw it down. And, and you say, you kick it, and you go, Stewardess, you lied to me. That's plan A. Let's say you get a different version of the story, though. And you're sitting on this plane, you're settling in for a flight, and the stewardess comes by, and she says, Excuse me, sir, I have a parachute. You say, Parachute? Why would I want to put it on a parachute? Oh, well, it's because at any moment, the wings might fall off of this plane, and we will crash to a, a, a horrendous um, burning death. Next picture. Okay. Now suddenly, suddenly you put the parachute on and you don't mind that it's a little bit uncomfortable. You don't mind that people are making fun of you because you're like, I'm the only one with the parachute, idiots. They don't know what's really going on. And you know, when the stewardess comes around to pass coffee and she spills a little bit on your lap and it burns, it just makes you look forward to the jump. You see, there's a huge difference. And when people are told to put on Jesus because he will make their life better and more comfortable, and then they find out that it's uncomfortable, and it's actually they're the only one in their class or their school or their, or their group or their family that's wearing this uncomfortable thing, it's, it's making them stand out, they get irritable and suddenly they're not even behaving like Christians would behave because they're just annoyed. But you know, when you tell somebody that they need to put on Christ because they're in danger of crashing and burning, and there's eternal consequences to pay, suddenly the discomfort of discipleship isn't so great. Today I want to walk you through one of the most beautiful, famous stories of Scripture. And I want to demonstrate to you why loss is so important in Christian discipleship. And together, I want to grow in our understanding of what it means to have the privilege of a broken heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray that now you would speak to us. And even now, I just feel if there's people in this, in this auditorium who don't know you, I pray that they would come away with a more accurate picture of who you are today. And for those who have wandered away and maybe become disillusioned because things are hard, I pray, Father, that you would speak to them and that you would give hope in that dark place as I pray that you would speak to all of us. Amen. Amen. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament is named after a Moabite woman. Now, this is a highly unusual honor. She was both female and a foreigner. But Ruth was not an ordinary foreigner, and her story demonstrates the extraordinary way that God paints and writes our stories into existence on the perpetual journey towards his ultimate purposes and plans for our lives. At the time of history, when Ruth was alive, the world was in transition. To the west, the Greece. Greece was the dominant power, but the conditions necessary for the rise of Rome were being laid. In Egypt, King Ramses IV was at war on the sea, and in the far east, the silk trade was winding its way through, uh, through, the, through Asia and towards Europe, and the great Chao dynasty was close to seizing power. In the Middle East... The baby nation of Israel was being ruled by judges. It was a dangerous place as the tribal regions were rife with bandits and ill-intended opportunists. Now, these judges, they were the stuff of legends. They were prophets, warlords, assassins, and in some cases, ordinary folk just called to extraordinary missions. And in the center of this melee in the region of Judah, And then, in the town of Bethlehem, which is tiny on that map, so I circled it in a very faint orange circle. (laughs) Our story takes place, and the stage was being set for tragedy. The story of Ruth begins as a woman named Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, together with their two sons, are forced through famine to leave their home of Bethlehem and travel to the land of Moab, which is just around the Dead Sea. This was the same land that Elimelech's forefathers would have crossed through on their exodus from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. It was the same land. It was there in the land of Moab, however, that that Naomi and Elimelech's sons chose Moabite Moabite women as wives. Tragically, the land and times were treacherous. And we don't know how, but Naomi's husband died, and then both her sons died died as well, and all three women were widowed. See, the first, the first and last loss in discipleship is of life. It's the first and the last loss. Death forms the basis of all the losses you will face as a disciple of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Of course, the first death isn't a physical death, not usually, but a death to your sinful self. When you first gave your heart to the Lord, did you know that you would be facing immediate death for it? Did you know that? For some, the death is fast, just a flick of the assassin's knife and the old life is finished. For others, it's dying to yourself in this long, drawn-out, lethargic, degenerative process. In Romans 11, or 6 verse 11, it says, So you too consider, yourself, consider yourselves dead to sin. There's a death involved. To live in such a way that sin is dead to you or that you're dead to it, that's painful. If anybody tells you it's not painful, they, they don't know it well enough. It's very hard. For goodness sakes, in Romans 6 6, Paul actually says that we've crucified our sinful nature. Crucifixion, hard, painful death. This isn't easy. The very foundation of Christianity is that you would die to yourself what you want to live and that you would live in a different way. And regardless of whether you liked the old you or not, some of us actually liked ourselves before we became Christians, we all have to live with the sober realization that death may come to us also simply because of our allegiance. Physical death may eventually come to us. This is the blood of the martyrs that Pastor Joel spoke about a number of weeks ago. It's a spiritual, so there is a spiritual death to the old self, and a physical death at the Lord's determined time. And both these deaths, or potential deaths, those make the groundwork, they prepare the ground for life with Christ. And death is the foundation to the story of Ruth. It happens within the first few verses. After the death of her husband and sons, Naomi then advanced a decade in age since her departure from Judah was thrust into a world of poverty and made the difficult decision to leave Moab for her tribal home of Bethlehem, hoping to find the favor of God among some of her relatives who might care for her. It was a lonely place for a widow, and a widow without a husband or a widow without sons, she really had nothing left. Nothing. The widows of her sons, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, begged Naomi not to leave. But Naomi would not be deterred, She had to do what she could to survive, so Orpah and Ruth traveled with her until she told them through stinging tears but with strong resolve that they had to return back to their homeland. They were still young enough to find new husbands, but she was too old, so they should let her go and die. Although Orpah reluctantly left, and she did, Ruth wouldn't. She wouldn't let go. And through her decision, Ruth willingly entered into poverty, into the same poverty of her elderly mother-in-law, and she made this astonishing statement. Do not persuade me to leave you or to go back and not follow you, for wherever you go I will go, and wherever you live I will live. Your people will be my people and your kingdom or your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so ever so severely. If anything but death separates you from me. And that's it. That is a willing laying down of our life for a greater good. It's beautiful brokenness. It's a transcendent tragedy. That's what we're witnessing right here. And it leads us to the second loss of discipleship. The second loss of discipleship is the loss of leaving, which is actually a form of death. It's leaving. My brothers, Nathan and Sam, were virtually twins because they both graduated the same year because Nathan's a nerd and he skipped grade four into grade five and they were both in the same grade after that. So when I was entering into grade six, they were both graduating. And uh, when they graduated, they both basically fled the province and follow, uh, following the um, and, and had several adventures in the following years, both at Bible school and on missions. The summer after Bible school, my summer, uh, my summer, <laughs> my Sam, my brother Sam. It's not my Sam. I'd never call him that. <laughs> I just have to pause and tell you a little story here about Sam. One time, Sam came home from a mission trip, and I was sleeping. He came home from Thailand. This is like several summers in. And I was still sleeping. So he came down, he pounced on my bed, and was like screaming, Tom, oh, wake up. I'm home. I'm home. I'm home. And I'm like, Sam, it's so amazing that you're home. And then he stood up, and my ceiling fan caught him in the head about 18 times. <laughs> 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 oh. And that moment, uh, All of my life at his hands became worth it. It was so good. (laughs) Anyways, okay. The summer after Bible school, my brother Sam went on his first missions trip to Venezuela. Then after Venezuela the next summer, he uh, accepted uh, an offer to go to Peru. Now, on the very night that he offered to go to Peru and spend the summer there, at 2 a.m. in the morning, one of his friends, Daryl Regeer, called him and said, Sam, I'm engaged and asked him to be the best man in his wedding on the same day. And Sam wrestled with it because he wanted to be there for his friend, but he couldn't. He had to leave. And then, wouldn't you know it, on the same week, his roommate from Bible school, who lived in Idaho, called him and said, Sam, I'm getting married. I want you to be my best man. And suddenly, he had more people getting married. And he tells me the story about how on the day of of Daryl's wedding, he climbed a mountain because he was actually mad. He was frustrated with God that he was missing out on some of the most important days in his friends' lives. And he climbed on top of a mountain, and uh, he said that on the mountain, as he was frustrated with God, God met him in the one and only vision that he's ever had. And it's a long vision, I won't get into all of it, but Jesus was dying on the cross, he went up to the foot of the cross, and God told him, Sam, if you're going to do what I'm asking you to do, you are going to be leaving for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life, you will be leaving. And now, for 17 years, he's been leaving. He lives in Abbotsford now, and he runs the missions that he sends young people on around the world, but he often goes with them, checks up on them, leaves his family behind. He doesn't live in Manitoba with our parents. He's still leaving. Anyone who thinks it's easy to leave is either fooling themselves or is to to be pitied because they have a lack of attachment. It should be hard to leave. Absolutely, it should be hard to leave. When Amy Carmichael heard Hudson Taylor, who uh, in the late 19th century, 1800s, ran Asia Inland Mission, when Amy Carmichael heard him, she decided that she would give her life to missions. She left her home in Ireland And eventually went to Asia, into India, where she served until the day she died, never returning home 55 years without a furlough. 55 years. It's a very long time. I read a quote by her just this morning. She said that a young woman had written her and asked her about the missionary life, what it's all about, and she replied, missionary life is simply a chance to die. When Agnes Buyaju left home in 1928 at the age of 18, she would never see her mother and sister again, and she didn't know that she would become Mother Teresa. She was just obeying the call of Christ on her life. Left home, 18, never again saw her mother and sister. This past week, I saw a trailer for a new movie that's coming out. I don't know if it's any good. Don't take this as an endorsement. It's called The Martian. I, I, thought it's, I thought it was awful when I saw it. Um, it's about – I'm sorry, Ken, I just heard you go, yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be an awful movie, so <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's about this guy who goes on a mission to Mars with a whole team of people. Something happens, he looks dead, so they leave him there because that's what you do with people who look dead. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't check if he was alive. Like, this actually could be a story from my life with my brothers. Um... <laughs> They didn't check whether he was alive, they just shut the door on the shuttle and took off. And there might be more to it than that, I'm not sure. Anyways, he's not dead. But they're already on their way back home, and now he has to survive with only 51 days of emergency food. And just watching the trailer, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so claustrophobic just watching the trailer. <laughs> and the point, the point I'm going to make is this. Right now, currently, now that movie is set in the future, but right now, currently, there are people who are signing up to go on a mission to Mars to colonize it, and they know that if they go there, they will never return, because the trip would take too long. And setting things up, and they would may die on the way, and they I'm going to say they probably will, <laughs> just putting it out there. <laughs> and you would think you'd have to, be, in, you'd have to have be short brain cells to take this on. Like, you can't, you can't get paid enough because there's nowhere to spend your money on Mars. <laughs> it just seems like such a bad idea. But, But when Mother Teresa left her home in Albania, it was just as far away as Mars. She never went back. When Amy Carmichael left, she only went back and it was because she was very sick, and then she left again and never went back. We're talking about months and months and months of travel. Leaving, it means more than just moving away. You know, it was true a century ago when these brilliant, courageous women entered ministry. That leaving was more than just moving away. And particularly when Ruth followed Naomi to her home, leaving meant leaving culture, family, food, traditions, history, as well as, for Ruth, the Moabite gods with whom she had grown up. She said, I will now serve Yahweh. Your God will be my God. I tell you something, there's nothing, there's no time of year that makes me more homesick than harvest. I grew up on a farm, and when the the fields are being burnt and my asthma's acting up and my eyes are itchy, it just makes me want to be there. You have no idea. (laughs) But I remember the day that I told my dad that I would not be taking over the family farm. And do you know what happened that day? Although there was this knot in my stomach, a, a weight just lifted right off me. It was incredible. Because although leaving was painful, the reward was greater. And it should cause a lump in our throat. You know, with these women, I can't even fathom the finality of their decisions. And with Ruth, she may have traveled a shorter distance, but in many ways she traveled farther because for her to go back was virtually impossible. She was making a final decision to leave, and it was a death. And what awaited them in Bethlehem? Further loss. The third loss of discipleship is the loss of dignity. Now, there are some people who are too proud to take work that they consider below them, even if poverty is thrust upon them. Ruth was not one of these people. And don't forget that Ruth needn't have left Moab and her people. She needn't have agreed to serve Naomi in her old age, but she did, and that's the point. You know, my grandma, wonderful, godly lady, when my grandfather died, my grandmother's still alive, when my grandfather died in 2009, I went to her and I said, you know, Grandma? you now occupy a favored position in God's heart. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, all throughout the scripture, God says, I care for the widows and the orphans. I care for the widows and the orphans. I said, you now occupy a favored position with, with God. Amen. Ruth, or and Naomi, really, as widows, occupied a favored position with God. But you know what the interesting thing is? God uses people to show favor on the widows. And there was no guarantee that Naomi and Ruth would have any favor when they returned to Bethlehem. No guarantee at all. It's, and, and, and being a widow alone, you lose dignity because you have to ask for help. My grandma has to ask for help. Now in those days, in Ruth's days, during the time of harvest, Servants were, or hired help would cut grain by hand and piled into stacks called sheaves. In fact, in Leviticus 19, God commanded that among the, for the poor, you should actually let some of the grain fall to the ground for the, for the poor to come behind you after you'd gather the sheaves, and you could, they could pick that up and, so that they could be taken care of. I can't imagine that it would have been dignifying to go along with the other obviously poor people and spend time doing backbreaking work of gleaning in the field after it had been harvested, but this is where Ruth was found working. She had to to find enough food for herself and Naomi, her mother-in-law, and it was not below her to serve and work in this way. It just wasn't. She did it. Her discipleship cost her something, but for loyal Ruth, the cost was not too great, I remember when I was on a missions trip in Mexico, one team went to a compound with a bunch of farmers, and it was a horrible situation. They would hire these very poor farmers. They'd pay them nothing, so they basically had to live on the, on the farm compound. There were high walls. It was abject poverty. It was unbelievable. And one of the teams that was working there, they, they said, oh, Tom, they said, it's so hard. We hold the kids, and we can see the lice crawling in their hair. We can see it. But we can't put them down. We have to hold them we have to love them. You see, and there's a loss of dignity there. It's difficult to hold somebody who's, who's ridden with pests, right? You lose dignity. I lost some dignity when I was the lone Christian in one of my classes at university. It was called Quaternary Environments, which looks at the last 1.8 million years of Earth's history. I stood out as the sole creationist who believed that random chance wasn't responsible for all of the life on Earth and that God was at the helm. I taught a course for my entirely, well, there were only nine of us in the class, thankfully, and the professor, all of them atheists. And I taught them what the Bible teaches about creation, and I sweat a lot. (laughs) It was a hard day, and they laughed and giggled. But then my professor came to church once. There's a cost to discipleship. It doesn't matter whether you're a CEO who comes to Christ, and now you wonder about the dignity you're going to lose from your business partners. It doesn't matter if you're a young high school student who comes to Christ and now you're going to be mocked by your peers because you won't party with them. It doesn't matter if you're a wife who comes to Christ and now her husband is going to taunt her because she's just found another crutch to lean on. It doesn't matter. In some way, you're going to lose dignity along the way for following Christ. And we have to decide whether it's worth it. You know, Anthony Flew, he was the the atheist who wrote the book on atheism. He literally wrote the textbooks on atheism. And all through his life, he was this vociferous, angry atheist who would debate anybody. He wrote a very famous book called There Is No God. Shortly before his death, he wrote another book. Because he had converted not all the way to Christianity, but to deism. He said, I I cannot explain away the design elements in the universe any longer. So he wrote this book. There is no, it's scratched out, there is a God. And all around the world, atheists died in their footsteps. I actually heard reports that atheists thought that that, um, Anthony Flew had lost his mind. And so he spent the last few years of his life completely lost all the credibility of his entire life in just the last few years because he changed his mind. Ruth chose to pick among the poor for her mother-in-law Instead of staying in the security of her homeland, she became undignified and it cost her. But this is the privilege of a broken heart. One day, Ruth found herself unwittingly gleaning in the fields of a relative of Naomi's husband. His name was Boaz. One day, when Boaz came to check on his servants, he noticed Ruth and asked one of the female servants about her. When Boaz learned Ruth's identity, he asked her. He invited her to glean only in his field, to drink his servant's water, to stay close to his own female servants, and informed her that he had instructed his men not to touch her, which is really strange that they needed to be told. When she asked Boaz why he was choosing to extend such kindness to her, a foreigner, you know what he said? This is what he said. Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. And then he shared his lunch with her. A picnic. Naomi was through the roof. When she heard that Boaz had noticed Ruth and praising God, she informed Ruth that Boaz was one of their kinsman redeemers. You know what that meant? Kinsman redeemer. Kinsman is a relative. A redeemer is somebody that can buy you out of something in those days if your husband and sons died you would need somebody to buy you out of poverty the land that elimelech owned did not transfer to his wife it did not transfer to his daughter-in-laws it stayed there until somebody would buy it a kinsman redeemer a a relative who had money would come along and pay the widow what it was worth and then he would own the land that's what a kinsman redeemer was but there was a small catch and the catch was the widows were attached to the land And so, they concocted an idea. Uh, Naomi said, this is great. Boaz can become our redeemer. But there's a problem. There's one guy who's a closer relative, just one. We need to deal with him. So they went to Boaz. Actually, Ruth, uh, Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz to lay at his feet in the middle of the night at the threshing floor. And in the middle of the night, she uncovered his feet. Now, some scholars think that has a sexual innuendo. I just think she uncovered it because I always wake up when my feet are cold too. So she covered his feet, right? And, and Boaz woke up and there's a young lady, it's Ruth, she's sleeping at his feet. Oh my goodness, this is, this is inappropriate. So he kept her there overnight. Nothing happened. He wanted to keep her safe. And the next day he said, I will actually marry. In fact, he was floored because he was really old and he thought he was beyond the marriable age. He thought Ruth was doing him a favor. Oh, you want to marry somebody who thinks you're doing them a favor. Actually, if you both think that the other person is doing you a favor, that's the best marriage of all. It's great. My wife did me a favor marrying me. I know that. But it wasn't going to work. So what Boaz did is he went to the town gates. He sat there with the elders, and he waited for the other relative to walk through. And when he came, he said, Hey, would you like to buy Naomi's land? You're the first in line for it. Would you like it? And he said, Yes, I'd love to buy it. He says, Ah! But she comes along. And the other one went went, oh, not so much, because he was worried that it would ruin his own inheritance. So he said, it's fine, I don't want it. And then he said, all right, you have spoken in public that you do not want the land, let's exchange sandals as a sign of it. So, because they're preoccupied with feet in Ruth's time. So they traded sandals and the deal was done. And Boaz married Ruth and took in her mother-in-law. And they all lived happily ever after. And that's actually the way it ends. But you know, I'm, not, I'm sure that it wasn't happily ever after without a sense of lingering grief and loss. Because our losses never completely leave us. But you know what? Everything worth having in life costs something. Everything. Everything. Vince Lombardi, a longtime NFL coach, said the quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. Pele, who's a soccer player, says, success is no accident, it's hard work, perseverance, learning, sacrifice, and most of all, love for what you are doing or learning to do. Muhammad Ali said, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit, suffer now, and live the rest of your life as a champion. Julie Andrews said, some people regard discipline as a chore. For me, it is a kind of order that sets me free to fly. George Washington said, nothing can be more hurtful to the service than the neglect of discipline. For that discipline, more than numbers, gives one army the superiority over another. Now, I have a question. Why is it that if someone devotes their life to boxing or becoming a great musician or becoming an astronaut, we celebrate their decision and their sacrifice? But when someone devotes their life to Christ and makes the necessary sacrifices that come along with that commitment, we scorn them. In fact, they're scorned by fellow Christians. When I came here from my church in Winnipeg, I told somebody about this crazy church in Steinbeck where they're youth leaders. They come to youth on youth nights and then they come again on another night for leaders night and then they come again for church. You know what somebody said? Well, yeah, that's Steinbeck. Yeah, because they love Jesus there. You see, this should not be so. And herein lies a great secret. All these other pursuits have rewards, but only human rewards. Only human rewards. The prize is exactly that. It's a prize. It's a trophy. It might be a kitty or a treasure, but everything that is a human reward will pass away. It will burn eventually. It's not going to last. Did you know that even Ruth's reward eventually ended? Even her reward was an earthly reward. It was a human reward. Certainly, she'll be rewarded in heaven. But on earth, the losses she faced, that, that Boaz filled, that, that where he came and bought her out, he was just a human redeemer. You see, if you need, if you want supernatural rewards, you need a supernatural redeemer. You need a supernatural redeemer. And most remarkably, we have a redeemer who not only t- tells us that we're going to live a life of loss, he says, I can sympathize with your loss. This is the brilliance of Christianity. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Isn't this incredible? It's completely incredible. Even, you know, it's funny, even the story of Ruth, this is foreshadowed a little bit. You know why? Boaz could actually identify with the one he was redeeming. I love this part of the story. It's the backstory that you don't always think about. I love it. Do you know why Boaz had so much compassion for Ruth and Naomi? Because his mother was Rahab. Boaz's mother was Rahab. She was the prostitute in Jericho who saved the, the spies. And her whole family was saved. And after she was saved, she became an Israelite. She married a man named Salmon. And they had Boaz. And he, as a child, would have heard the stories of how his mother— Of how his mother would have been an outcast, even among her own people in Jericho, because of the profession she had. How she was an outcast as a foreigner. And that grew compassion in his heart so that when it came time for him to redeem Ruth, he said, of course I'll redeem her. She's a foreigner. She needs help. And we have a redeemer like that. He looks and he says, of course I'm going to redeem you. You're foreigners, you need help, you're weak, you're not strong. And so what does our Redeemer say to us about the loss felt in death? In Isaiah 53, it says he, was, he, Jesus, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. In Matthew, it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. At about 3 in the afternoon Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani." That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Then Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spear. He felt the loss of death. And then he said earlier, "Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for me and the gospel will save it." Incredible. Our God, our Redeemer knows what it's like to face the loss of death. What about the loss of leaving? Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He knew what it was like to leave, to leave his family behind. And then he gave his disciples the same verse that he gave my brother on the mountaintop. I assure you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, or mother, father, children, or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive 100 times more now at this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. A hundred times. You'll be rewarded. And the loss of dignity... Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy laid before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God, he knew what it was like to feel a loss of dignity. And then in Philippians, he commands us. We're commanded by Paul. Make your own attitude that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We worship a Redeemer who astonishingly asks no more of us than he has already given. Wow. What a God. you know what the privilege of a broken heart is? Above everything else, it is love. That's what it is. It's love. Do you know how many people have told me they could never be a foster parent because they would get too attached to the kids and it would hurt too much to say goodbye? Of course it will. If my kids leave my house, my heart will be broken. Of course it will. But I'm telling you something. They deserve to have a parent with a broken heart. Of course there is loss. Of course there is pain. That's the privilege of a broken heart. If my children were taken from my home, I would be privileged to feel the pain of brokenness because I would have felt such deep loss. Those who have never been broken hearted have never loved deeply enough and that is the greater tragedy by far. I will gladly choose love and potential heartbreak over a lonely boring life any day and I would gladly lose what the world has to offer For the invaluable acclamation of my lord jesus christ paul said it this way but everything that was a gain to me i've considered to be a loss because of christ more than that i also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of christ jesus my lord because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Assuming that I somehow will reach the resurrection from among the dead. And then he says, "Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Observe those who live according to the example you have in us." I have a challenge for you. It's this. We have to start younger than we've been starting. So if you're a parent or a grandparent who cares for children, I would encourage you to go to the renewedfamily.com. I put a post there this morning. And it gives some tips about how we can start teaching our kids about the privilege of a broken heart. It is important. We don't want our kids to grow up being disillusioned with what it actually means to be a Christian. It's very, very critical. And then, spend time considering the losses you've suffered for Christ and the gospel. Ask the Lord if you've harbored bitterness over any of them. And finally, ask the Lord for his perspective on these losses. What have you gained because of them? I'll bet you it's going to start in this last song. And finally, reflect on the loss Jesus suffered for us and worship him. Jesus, I pray that the loss we experience in our lives that we genuinely have to grieve for, that it would feel nothing compared to the immeasurable riches of knowing you. And I pray, God, that all the grief we feel over the life we've left and over the things we've experienced would turn now into worship towards a great redeemer who faced them with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.